0: Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the wellness company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code StrangePlanet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the
1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: On this episode, a former U.S. congressional staffer and intelligent asset turned whistleblower reveals how she tried to warn various U.S. officials about the 9 11 terrorist attacks.
2: My God, what's going to happen if there's no FBI director when this next attack occurs? I said, You mean the attack on the World Trade Center? So he said, absolutely. He said, we expect this attack is imminent. And I said, you mean like in the next few weeks? And he said, absolutely, it's coming, it's right here.
0: If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just a ninety-nine per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial free episodes per month. Plus, access to my back catalog of episodes. That's over 350 episodes. To subscribe,
1: Richard zaret
0: Welcome to your Wednesday. A quick programming note. Part 2 of my conversation with Nelson Thall regarding the life and times of Marshall McLuhan was supposed to drop today, but then I realized the anniversary of 9/11 is now upon us, Friday actually. So instead, I'm going to spend the next two episodes discussing exactly that. Friday, of course, marks the 19th anniversary Of the 9 11 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Susan Lindauer is here to discuss what happened when she tried to disclose the true facts of a 9 11 warning and Iraqi pre war intelligence to Congress and the nightmare of her arrest via the Patriot Act. As a U.S. intelligence asset, Susan covered anti-terrorism at the Iraqi embassy in New York from 1996 up to the invasion. Independent sources have confirmed she gave advance warning about the 9-11 attack. Shortly after requesting to testify before Congress about successful elements of pre-war intelligence, Lindauer became one of the first non-Arab Americans arrested on the Patriot Act as an Iraqi agent. She is the author of Extreme Prejudice. Susan Lindauer, how are you?
2: I'm doing great. This is an exciting 9-11 anniversary because President Donald Trump is now reviewing briefing memos from about 20 or 30 9-11 experts who have challenged the official story of 9-11.
0: Now, how did you find out about that?
2: Robert David Steele has been organizing it, and he's gone to experts from Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth and Barbara Honiger, uh, experts on the Pentagon. He's come to me, and we've all put together – one-page briefings for President Trump and also video segments which are going to be viewed by the White House revealing what we have discovered in our research about 9-11.
0: Well, I've learned sort of back-channel through a mutual friend who uh, Roger Stone wrote a a foreword for his book and he assured me through Roger Stone that Donald Trump is very much looking into a lot of this stuff. Now, it's interesting that Jeb Bush dropped out He claimed he had campaign funding issues, but I think it was sort of missed by a lot of people. He sort of muttered, Donald Trump did, muttered something during one of the presidential debates about the Bush family and 9-11. And then all of a sudden, Jeb drops out. Do you remember that incident?
2: I remember it, too, that there was kind of a, a dig Behind the scenes, that you know, if only President Bush had paid attention to the intelligence community, we might have been able to avoid this catastrophe.
0: Let me ask you though, how you got into this? Because you know, you were what is a congressional staffer doing at the Iraqi embassy? When what was your role? Well,
2: I had two different lives. Congressional staffers are prohibited by law from having contact with foreign governments, period, end of conversation. It is not allowed to happen at all. So I became an asset after my work on Capitol Hill as a press secretary for Congressman Ron Wyden and Senator Carol Mosley Braun from Illinois. In between those things, I had begun contacts with the Libya House, starting discussions for the Lockerbie trial, and it really became a, you know, a political cover to say that I was a media consultant or a, you know, I had to to explain what I was doing, and I couldn't tell anybody what it really was, so that became the legend.
0: We're not here necessarily to talk about Libya, but you were there to negotiate turning over the Pan Am hijackers?
2: Yes. The first thing that I did, I was... The CIA and defense intelligence asset covering both Libya and Iraq at the United Nations, and I had a defense intelligence handler because, of course, the CIA is not allowed to operate in the United States, even though the United Nations created a a special loophole for that because you know, embassies are foreign territory. So we were kind of dodging in between that. But the Defense Intelligence Agency had a need to know about terrorist activities overall. So it was a back channel for the purpose of gaining intelligence on terrorism activities. I dealt with Gaddafi and Mubarak in Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Malaysia, Iraq, Yemen. I dealt with a whole bunch of different countries. Some of them had an inkling that I had intelligence ties because my CIA handler was famous, had been exposed as a CIA person. And what happened was we went to Libya and we said, look, he has the capability. He was in Lebanon during the Civil War. And the real story of Lockerbie was the CIA during the hostage crisis of Terry Anderson and a CNN bureau chief. There were about 90 hostages who the Lebanese Civil War would trade for, the jihadists would trade for cash when they needed money to buy weapons. And Terry Waite, yes. Anglican bishop, was one of them. And these people lived in horrible conditions. They were, they, they were literally chained to the wall with a bucket for a toilet.
0: Right. And Terry Waite was kidnapped twice, point. I think.
2: Yes, he was. He was released by one group and then captured again. So my CIA handler had been there, and what happened was the CIA, the justification for this operation was the CIA was trying to infiltrate the Hezbollah jihadists, what was then called Islamic jihad, and they were trying to find out where those hostages were, were being kept. So they justified doing business with them, trafficking heroin. And the Islamic jihadists had two sources of income. One was the kidnappings and one was heroin trafficking. So the CIA would it was helping them move the heroin into London, Frankfurt and New York. And Ostensibly, that was to create a different cash channel that would allow them to let go of the hostages. But, of course, that's not how it played out. It turned out that there were a couple of double agents, rogue agents, in the CIA. And every time the locations of the hostages would be discovered and they would be close to moving in to grab them, somebody at the CIA was tipping off the Hezbollah folks and they would suddenly be moved again and so Terry Anderson was kept for three years more than that possibly the guy at CNN was kept for three years and it was a terrible terrible conditions the wife of the bureau chief at CNN went to the hospitals and worked in the Shatilla refugee camp trying to make peace with the people trying to show sympathy for the people anything that they could to get them out William Buckley who was the station chief for the CIA, was hideously tortured. He was kidnapped and beaten to death with bricks, and they pulled out his fingernails. They really beat this guy badly and finally killed him. And then they dumped his body at the front gates of the CIA office in Beirut, which was supposed to be classified. Nobody was supposed to know where that was. And so by dumping Buckley's body... At the gates of the front door of the CIA station house, they were saying, Look, he broke. We broke him before he died. This was scary stuff. It really was. So Lockerbie was actually someone at the Defense Intelligence Agency, McKee, had reported his belief that the CIA was betraying the hostages by. Every time they'd be found to make a rescue, to send in the Delta Force, they'd be moved. And so he said, okay, we've got a traitor on the CIA side. So the FBI in Washington and the CIA in Washington sent out a team to Beirut to do an investigation. And they were all coming back on Pan Am 103 (sighs) when the plane was bombed. Now, I will tell you even more than that, it's been reported that McKee – got on not in Beirut but at a different location, and his travel plans were diverted from his original flight schedule, and he was put on Pan Am 103 where everybody else was already there, and then the plane magically got bombed.
0: So, in other words, these are not Libyan bombers. This is a wet team came in to clean up.
2: Yes, it's a wet team cleanup. Yes, absolutely. And then it, the plane went down over the roofs of Scotland, they do know that there was a break-in at the London Heathrow Airport in the baggage area that same day. There was a break-in, and the plane blew up over the roofs of Scotland, detonated by a parabolic device that was set off to the height of the airplane in the sky.
0: And why the decision to pin this on Gaddafi, basically?
2: Well, originally, they went after Syria. They knew exactly who did it. They knew exactly who did it. The Stasi in eastern Germany and East Berlin had been tracking Ahmed Briel and the Palestinian Front Liberation Project and the PFLP. And they correctly identified who did it. They said, these are the guys who did it. And during the first Iraq war, George Bush wanted Syria as an ally and wanted flyover rights …so that they could get into Baghdad. And at that point, Hafez al-Assad said, well, you better take us off your terror list. And so at that point, President George Bush the First said, well, you're right. We'll do it. So they transferred the whole blame onto Libya, which had been guilty of targeting a, a discotheque in Germany. Right, right. And the, the Berlin discotheque. And so they said, well, blame Gaddafi instead. And even if he didn't do this attack, we know he did the others. But Megrahi and FEMA had nothing to do with it. They were total patsies, nothing whatsoever.
0: And so, just so I'm clear, then the WET team, they were using Palestinian assets to take care of this business? Or, I mean, who was ultimately responsible?
2: Well, it was Palestinian Syrian assets. Ahmed Jibril, Abu Nidal, Abu Talb did it there were 11 in all and they were all Arabs and they were all guilty but I will tell you that Abu Nidal went to his death stating that he'd done it and this is very important because putting a bomb on an airplane is not an easy thing to do Abu Nidal had done a dozen or more airplane bombings airplane hijackings and he was I I, I don't want to say brave or courageous. That's not the right word. No. If you call it honor among thieves, he had the integrity. Again, using the word integrity and I'll it in the same sentences, it kind of makes you vomit. But he had the integrity not to blame somebody else for his crime. He said, I'm the one who did this.
0: But were they acting and at the behest of, of elements within the CIA who wanted? Yes, yes that's okay.
2: I want to finish with Lockerbie yes. because the key reason to talk about Lockerbie is to remember that false flags, there's tremendous political capital invested into these prosecutions. And Lockerbie was a predecessor to 9-11. It really was. Uh, it was a CIA inside job which had a purpose of protecting the CIA from exposure of its role in the heroin trafficking. And... It had nothing to do with Libya at all, so it's worth noting that events like 9-11 have happened before in terrorism. That's why it's important to talk about.
0: Right. Now, you obviously have been uh, you know, talking about a great deal, about writing a great deal about the warnings that were coming in to the U.S. administration months in advance of this event. From which quarters were these warnings coming in?
2: I think what I'd like to do is tell you uh, how I learned about 9-11 because it's so important. I learned about 9-11 from my CIA handler, Dr. Richard Fuse, in April of 2001. The Lockerbie trial had occurred in the year 2000, a year before. And during that period, during the trial, there was a lot of speculation in the intelligence community that the U.S. and British failure to identify the real culprits of the Lockerbie attack opened up the United States to a a position of weakness. It made us look either afraid of the terrorists, the real terrorists, or stupid, incredibly stupid, and either of those would be a provocation that real terrorists would not be able to withstand. Hmm. Okay, Interesting. Because, Interesting. Yes, because after fighting so hard to attack Libya and attach blame for Lockerbie onto Libya, once the United States was forced to show its hand in the Lockerbie trial in the year 2000, They had no evidence. There was nothing, nothing substantial at all. It was just, you know, George Bush making a declaration and signing a piece of paper. There was nothing. Meanwhile, there was a mountain of evidence showing that Ahmed Jibril and the Pacific Front for Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP, had been guilty, and that we were hiding from these terrorists was a provocation. So that had been discussed for some time, all through the Lockerbie trial, was that this was a terrible mistake. A year later, in April of 2001, I received a phone call from my CIA handler, Dr. Richard Hughes, asking me to come in, and he had a message he wanted me to deliver to the Iraqi embassy in New York, and he wanted a cable to be sent to Baghdad. So I went over there, and that was my role. I'd been doing this since I first contacted the Libyans in May of 1995. I contacted the Iraqis in August of 1996, and I'd been doing back-channel work exactly like this. I I was very skilled at this. It was the major focal point of my life, and the diplomats knew that if I came and delivered a message that they should take it seriously. So I went to Richard, And he said, Susan, I need you to tell the diplomats that um, we are expecting a major terrorist attack involving airplanes and some kind of strike on the World Trade Center. And we need you to tell Baghdad that if they discover any intelligence about this attack involving airplanes and the World Trade Center, that we demand they hand that inf- intelligence over to us. And if we find out that they have kept anything away from us, then we will – and and then it goes down. We will consider that an act of war and we will pound them into – harder than – harder and more ferociously than than we've ever hit them before we'll bomb them back into the stone age literally a second this, time <laughs> a second time and and by this time we'd hit Iraq so many times it would be difficult to to impress on them how we could make it worse than we'd already made it
0: right right and um, of course and, Iraq at this time is living under these you know crippling sanctions as a result of uh, you know the uh, the uh, the Gulf war uh so yeah i mean that must have been I mean, how was your message received when you went into that Iraqi embassy?
2: W- well, now, th- that is a very important question because uh, Iraq had always been one of our best sources on terrorism. Saddam recognized that this, that anti-terrorism was one facet that he shared with Washington and he could show his devotion and contributions and his commitment to be a good neighbor. So, a year earlier, in October 2000, during the, right before the bombing of the USS Cole, I had received a message from the Iraqi embassy to come in because they had a message for me and they told me that they had, uh, that they, that there was a foreign national, a Saudi, planning to assassinate the royal members of the Saudi royal family, and that he had planned to uh, attack a port in Yemen. This is the bombing of the USS Cole, and the Iraqis protested. They could only deport the man. They could not try him because, under international law, given Iraq's pariah status, it would be politically impossible for Iraq to take any action against any foreign national uh, and much less put them in prison because of their you know it would just it, even even somebody trying to kill the Saudi royal family would still be protected and, and, and exalted by the West. so it was not possible to arrest these people and so the but, they, but he told us he told us that they'd gone to Yemen, and they were going to strike a U.S. ship in Yemen. And so I immediately went back to my – reported that to the CIA and defense intelligence. And again, what we see is the night of the bombing of the USS Cole, um, the uh, ship was the, – the ship's orders were to stand down – Hmm. any protection of the ship. They knew that it would have to be a a boat ramming it or that somebody was going to try to board it or ram it because there's only certain things you could do to a ship. So they knew exactly what was going to happen. But uh, the the Iraqis had explained before the attack that the reason for this, for what was going to become the USS Cole, was that the, the group of terrorists Wanted to relocate from Somalia. This is Al Qaeda. Right. Somalia, they wanted to cross the border and come into Yemen so that they could position themselves inside this scrabble poor country and launch attacks on Saudi oil fields. Okay? This was a long term agenda. They wanted to set up a base of operations. They hoped the Iraqis despised them for this. They despised them because they were willing to subject the, the, the impoverished Yemeni people to harsh United Nations sanctions. The the, the Al Qaeda what we what we now call Al Qaeda wanted to uh hoped that the Yemeni response would be incompetent, poorly conceived, and then the Americans would become angry and would slap sanctions on Yemen and therefore that would isolate the Yemeni people and they would turn away from the central government and re and re- embrace the, te- the, the 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 invading terrorists.
0: It's a real chess use. game, my god. They're thinking like four or five yes. six steps ahead.
2: Yes, indeed. And I have to tell you that whenever I am terribly sorry about the war in Yemen, but I also know that that was the purpose of Al Qaeda to get into into Yemen, and this is a long-term, twenty-year game. Get into Yemen and attack the Saudi oil fields, destroy the Saudi wealth, take over the Saudi government. So, in a in a sense, I I do see why, I understand very much why the Saudis have responded the way they have. But my, my but my point in telling you that attack was that the the again the United States understanding the because the united states understood the the, the goal the chessboard and how the map was laid out they decided that they would allow the attack to be carried out in a the soldier the, the the sailors were told to go have shore leave so they were sent off many of them were sent off the boat the uss Cole, and then the the, pro- the protections that would stop the, anyone from striking the boat were removed. Okay, there are protocols for that, that stop uh, any little any smaller ship from even coming close to a U.S. vessel. Those were all taken apart, and then they let it happen. They sent everybody offshore, off to off you know to, to shore, and then let the attack happen. And then they they did it with the express intent that that. They, instead of asking for sanctions, they would demand, the United States would demand to send soldiers and, and military, the Navy, into Yemen to act as protections of the Saudis. So they would take, they made a decision in advance of, before the, the USS Cole occurred, on rapid turnaround. Uh, I learned about it on a Friday or excuse me, I I take that back. I learned about it about 10 days before. I went back to New York, warned the Yemeni ambassador on Friday night over dinner in New York, and the attack happened Wednesday night, Thursday morning. But we told the Yemeni ambassador exactly what we were going to want, that if the attack occurred, we wanted to send the U.S. Navy and have a military presence in Yemen to help to help. The Yemeni government forestall any future attacks against the Saudi oil fields. That
0: just doesn't make sense. Why not just stop it from happening in the first place?
2: Because they had to get the ba- they, they had Ah, you say, wait a minute. Why did they do that? Because the attack had to occur in order to keep the pressure on Yemen to deliver on allowing the United States to set up a military base there. They had to have that. So they used the attack as a false flag if you uh, as a staged attack i don't know if it's a false flag attack it's a staged attack
0: they let it happen
2: they let it happen right for the reason for a reason which was to get the so so meanwhile coming back to the iraqis before 911 the iraqis had told us about this and they had protested that they they knew the man wanted to that these that the conspirators desired to assassinate the Saudi royal family. They understood that that the conspirators wanted to set up a base in Yemen to attack Saudi oil fields. And they said, you know, if this was anyone, if we were any other nation, we could make arrests. And we could send these people to prison and hand them over to the Saudi government. But considering that we are such pariahs, we are prohibited from taking those basic actions. And that was Iraq's response as to why they, they could only deport them and tell us where they went. And so the CIA came back before 9-11. This becomes very, very, very important. In response to the USS Cole, the CIA comes back and says, okay, we, we understand why you did that, but we demand to send an FBI task force or Scotland Yard or Interpol task force into Baghdad, preferably FBI. They wanted U.S. control over it, but Scotland Yard too for British, British-U.S. control. And they wanted to. They told the Iraqis they wanted to have a, a terrorism task force, which would have authorization to conduct investigations, in, in interview witnesses and make arrests without Baghdad's interference. And so, in February of 2001, the Deputy Foreign Minister, Saeed Hassan, who had been, who had previously been a friend of mine at the Iraqi Embassy in New York, at, at, at when he was ambassador to the Iraq, for the Iraqi government, Iraq's ambassador to the United Nations, he agreed in February of 2001 that the FBI should be allowed to send a terrorism task force because of the USS Cole. So in April, when I go to them and I say, hey, uh, we've heard about this terrorism attack in New York and we'd like your help. The Iraqis were very polite. They said, okay, that's great. Uh, We'll cable Baghdad that you're seeking any intelligence on this. And uh, you want to send in the FBI, go right ahead.
0: More of my conversation with Susan Lindauer when Conspiracy Unlimited returns.
1: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine
0: I can't stop talking about the Pomegranate Super Tea from my friends at Get The Tea. They actually changed the name. It used to be known as Formula 13 Pomegranate Cleansing Tea, but this gentle cleansing tea now contains a new, stronger formula. All I know is it still tastes great, it's still refreshing, and it still provides me with energy and a sense of well-being. This new blend of tea contains some of the same ingredients as those that are in the Life Change Teas, but with added natural pomegranate flavor and stevia to give it a natural, slightly sweetened taste. One pouch of tea contains eight tea bags, enough to last for one month. I brew two gallons at a time, and then it steeps in cold water into the fridge it goes, and that's enough to last for the week. I start my day every day with a 16 ounce cool, refreshing glass of this amazing herbal, non-GMO, caffeine free tea. It provides a daily gentle cleanse that rids my body of any intruders, a healthy gut, is the key to a healthy body. So, come on board and find out for yourself. The Super Tea also comes in peppermint. These teas are not available in any store. Use the code UNLIMITED and all your orders ship for free. Get your tea from GetTheTea.com
1: The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again I don't know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: We are back with Susan Lindauer author of Extreme Prejudice. All right, so the the Iraqis were more than willing to cooperate. In terms of allowing the FBI, the CIA into their country, they weren't in a position to, to arrest terrorist suspects, so they were, they welcomed the FBI and the CIA CIA to come in and do that. This is in April of 2001, and you're receiving, uh, warnings of a terrorist attack coming to New York involving planes and the World Trade Center Tower.
2: Exactly. And Iraq's response is Very cordial. They'll send a notice to Baghdad. So then I go back to my CIA handler and I report back what the Iraqis promised to do. And he said, Well, what happened when you threatened them? I said, Oh, well, Richard, I. Threats are not necessary. Iraq's one of our best sources on terrorism. I told them what's going on and we need the intelligence. They promised to send the cable to Baghdad. They'll get us, it. if they hear of anything, they'll let us know. They know it's a top priority. He said, I did not tell you to, to be nice to those people. I want, I told you to deliver a threat. I demand that you go right back to New York and you deliver the message exactly as I told you. Oh, you, you tell- didn't
0: promise to, Bomb them into the Stone Age if they didn't cooperate.
2: No, not yet. I didn't. <laughs> there was not necessary. So he was really mad at me, and and he said, "I want you to go back there, and I want you to tell him exactly what I told you before. We are going to, we will consider this an act of war if they discover any intelligence and refuse to and fail to give it to us. They'd better, they'd better find this intelligence." And I, and he said, and then he said something very important. He said, I do not, Richard Fuse said, I do not want you to tell the Iraqis that this threat originates with you or I. I want you to tell them this threat of war originates above the CIA director and above the secretary of state. Now. Richard, those are only three people. Mm-hmm. The President of the United States, George Bush, Vice President Richard Cheney, and Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld. And those are the three people who had the authority and, – and, and, and my CIA handler was emphatic – that they wanted to make sure the Iraqis understood the threat of war for over this this future attack on the World Trade Center involving airplanes originated with those three men. So I went right back to New York and I said, I you know, gosh, you know, I I, I, I guess I didn't speak strongly enough before. I'm very chagrined. I have to I have to I've been ordered to repeat this message with this threat. And the diplomat was like, oh my goodness, well you know, I, I, oh, I'll tell Baghdad immediately that this is actually very serious. And, and he said, uh, Baghdad has already invited the FBI to send a terrorism task force. Please tell, go back to Washington immediately and tell them that I'm ready, that, that we at the embassy are ready to process the FBI visas Immediately and promptly and that I will have authorization to handle this here in New York. He said, I will, I will inform my staff that if I am at any meetings this, any time this week, uh, they are to interrupt my meetings no matter where I am and I will come, I will be here and I will return immediately forthwith to the embassy with no delays whatsoever. And we will process these visas so that the FBI can go straight in.
0: I can just imagine Dick Cheney saying, these damn compliant Iraqis, don't they know we're trying to pick a fight with them?
2: Yes, yes. It's awful. It's awful. Yes, the damn compliant Iraqis. Yes. And that was the story. That was what the, the, the ultimate tragedy of this whole thing. So, of course, I went back and, and, I, and Richard said, What's, what did they say to my threat? I said, oh, send in the FBI immediately. Tell the FBI they've got, a, they've got, they've got a green light. Well, do you think for a minute the FBI showed up at the embassy? No. Instead, all through the summer, we played this little dance. Have the Iraqis heard anything yet? The Iraqis said no. Everything that is coming about this attack comes from you. We don't know of any, all, any you know, time we try to chase down a source on anything, it all goes back to Washington. You are this you being the CIA, the CIA, Washington and the CIA are the source of all the terrorism talk. It's all your chatter.
0: They didn't want to hear that.
2: <laughs> they didn't want to hear that. Well but but the thing is it was true. It was true. So we play it was a game that we were playing. It was it was it was a game. I will be happy to tell you what happened on August second. And that was the day of Robert Mueller. This, this becomes in, uh, accelerates. The, 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 terrorism talk accelerates in August.
0: The, the strange dance going on through the summer of 2001, where the U.S. is demanding the Iraq turnover information relating to a possible terrorist attack. The Iraqis say we have none. All of the chatter leads directly back to Washington. Uh, so, I mean, Iraq, they must, in Baghdad, must be scratching their, their heads saying, what the heck do they want from us?
2: Well, exactly at that moment, the greatest tragedy of all was unfolding, in my opinion. The world had discovered that over 1.5 million to 2 million Iraqi people had died from the sanctions, including over 1 million. Children under the age of five. There's been a lot of talk to try to lower those figures and try to, you know, snuff down those pr- figures, but the figures of death were horrific. The entire planet was up in arms against the sanctions. And Iraq was moving quickly to uh, accept the return of weapons inspectors and trying to appease Washington, offering all sorts of concessions that were coming through my back channel. I, just as I'd done the Lockerbie Talks, with Libyan diplomats and senior ambassadors. So I was also doing the talks on the weapons inspections. People don't re- realize that. I am the one who did those talks with Iraq's ambassador, senior diplomats, and foreign ministry. So uh, at this point, they were offering the United States every possible concession. They offered preferential tre- uh, contracts for telecommunications, agriculture transportation the Iraqis offered to purchase 1 million American manufactured automobiles every year for 10 years I laughed they said we'll make it 20 years and I said no no 10 years is enough there would have been no automobile bailout of Detroit if this had happened didn't they also um,
0: promise to, tr- to to for free elections and for Hussein to resign
2: yes free elections and And Hussein would step down and retire to a villa in Tikrit. The Iraqi exiles were, the the Iraqis were very creative. Saddam's government was very creative. They said that they pointed out that embassies are sovereign territory of the home country. They invited the Iraqi exiles to return and live at The embassies, which could then reopen in Baghdad, and they could be housed. They could house the Iraqi exiles who would be allowed to campaign around the country, publish, uh, newspaper articles, radio, TV. You know, they'd have media access. And the world would go forward. Saddam would retire to a villa in Tikrit. Yes, indeed. Why would he be willing to do that? Because he was a survivalist. And he was at the end of his, his his life, and he was just he was ready, he was ready to go. It's like why attack Libya when Gaddafi was about to step down? There's right. no reason to attack Libya after at all. he had
0: reformed himself.
2: Yes, so- he re- and he was also about to retire. He was expected to retire in the next 12 to 18 months prior to the attack on Libya so there was no reason to have a regime change at all Saddam was going to go willingly, peacefully and and step aside and then he was going to open the way for the exiles also the United States would, was promised preferential contracts for healthcare, hospital equipment and pharmaceuticals and the all important oil the United States was promised preferential contracts for oil development and exploration and um that the, the United States would be given the contracts to rebuild Iraq's pumping stations and the damaged pipelines uh the sanctions had caused shutting off the pipelines not using the pipelines had caused them to rust out so they were they were leaking heavily into the desert and they were not they were not trans the, 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 the oil was 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 in a the, the oil infrastructure was badly damaged. They said we will give the United States full contracts to rebuild everything, all the oil infrastructure of our country. So the, this would have been peace was a big kaching kaching ching It was it, you would have had a a profit margin on the peace victory that would have been trim, you no no automobile bailout in Detroit. Economic profits for the whole world. It would have, peace would have been very significant. And all of this is going on throughout the summer before 9-11. So 9-11, the, 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 the peoples of the world, the governments of the world hated the sanctions. Everybody wanted it to change. The Iraqis had seen the world's change of heart and they were aggressively moving to get to negotiate a settlement within Washington, realizing that at that point, it w- Washington was the one holdout that they had to win over.
0: And these and sanctions so were- go back to Poppy Bush and then also through the Clinton years – and into George W. Bush, uh, correct?
2: Yes, yes.
0: I mean, in, in total, and how many years were those crippling sanctions in place?
2: They started in the year uh, 1990, and they continued until 2003. 13 years.
0: My word.
2: Yes. And how
0: many Iraqi children awful. dead as a result? Uh, in
2: 1990, the January of 1996, the uh, World Health Organization released figures that 500,000 children had died of sanctions by 1996. And Madeleine Albright, who was Secretary of State, was asked if she thought that was an acceptable rate of death. And she said yes absolutely and just explain the
0: pro- how how the one problems, yeah.
2: the problem was is that the children did not stop dying in 1996 the deaths continued until 2003 seven more years so it's estimated that over 1 million children died from the sanctions and that's and that only counted children 5 and under and it only counted adults over the age of 65 so the children were dying the old people were dying uh cancer was an epidemic like the flu in Iraq because of the depleted uranium as well. Right,
0: right. And when we say death by sanction, we're talking about lack of proper food, lack of medical yes. supplies and so forth.
2: Horrifying. They, I, I visited hospitals in Baghdad and they opened the medical cabinets in the hospitals and there was no medicine. They did not have aspirin to give a little child who was dying or suffering they did not have oxygen canisters they did not have they they had to use uh, hypodermic needles over and over and over again and sterilize them rather because they they couldn't uh, throw anything away every you know they had to go to the black market to buy medicines uh in northern iraq in the kurdish territories they would go up there to get medicines if they needed something
0: well iraq it was iraq was, was a cl- Iraq was a client state. What where did Saddam Hussein how did he rub George Herbert Walker Bush the wrong way? Were they business partners? Did he did did he somehow betray Bush? What happened?
2: You know, I I have to tell you that I've had so many conversations with the Iraqi diplomats on that very subject, and nobody ever could understand it. They were like, he was our friend. Dick Cheney was our friend. And they would show me pictures, photographs of Saddam shaking hands with Dick Cheney, big, huge smiles on their faces. Um, The Saudis hated the Iraqis, and the Saudis have violently – they they saw – Iraq as a secular government. They have uh, their evil. I, I think the Saudis are the most evil people. Frankly, I have a deep, hate, a personal, deep hatred of the Saudis. Uh, they they have attacked for the regime.
0: Anybody. For the regime. For not the for, regime. For, yes, for yes, the yes,
2: regime. Yes. For the regime. Yes. Excuse me. I, I stand corrected. It's the regime. They attack other countries just like we've seen them do in Libya and Syria for no reason whatsoever. There was, you know, that was a Saudi war. The United States was, and NATO were proxies for the Saudis. But the, the war in Syria, again, proxies for the Saudis. And this is just, this is just an evil, selfish, ugly, uh, government. That ideology, that they have the right to slaughter other people. They're very spoiled and self-indulgent people. They treat other human beings hideously. Yes. I I really don't like the Saudi. You can tell. I just really don't like the Saudi So,
0: So, yes, Iraq was this secular country. It was a bulwark against terrorism. But, I mean, Hussein was...
2: Work against Iran. Yes, I mean, yes. I, you know, I realize that a lot of people today like Iran, or they they realize that we should stop declaring wars on other countries. Whether you like Iran or not is is irrelevant. The question is, do we have the right to destroy Iran on a whimsy because we don't like them? And whether you like Iran or not, and I, you know, I I am I I believe strongly that we need to leave those people alone. So.
0: Well, I think I think those people uh, are are itching for regime change themselves, and uh, maybe with a little encouragement but, it'll but happen but, be, they'll, they'll, but decide. They'll, they'll decide they'll decide
2: themselves Yes, they, they, they will. have to do their own regime change. Yes, the United States cannot be the the fulcrum for regime change throughout the world, and no. we if we're paying a a, a much deserved price. A high, we're, we're paying for this, and we deserve to pay the price for this.
0: But the point um, is, again, Iraq was a client state. that could still be an ally.
2: They uh, wanted, and they yes, tried very yes. hard to get back in good graces. So let me tell you what happened in, on August 2nd, because I want to tie this back now to 9-11. August 2nd was a critical day in my life. That was the day... The Senate confirmed Robert. The Senate held nomination hearings for Robert Mueller to head the FBI. And on that day, I was a uh, a consultant at a little company down here in Silver Spring. I was speaking with my CIA handler, and I said, "Oh, Robert Mueller, yuck, yuck, awful, awful. Um, there is no terrorism investigation that that man has not thrown." And I said, I think he's a terrible choice to be the director of the FBI. And and Richard said, really, which ones do you think? And I said, well, look at Oklahoma City. It was Robert Mueller who insisted Timothy McVeigh did this alone. We all know that Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols had ties to the Philippines and to the Islamic community, uh, which Abu Sayyaf and uh, Ramzi Youssef from the 1993 World Trade Center attack had taken up base in, had, make, had, had taken up sanctuary in, in Manila, or, or not in Manila, but it was, it was a, in the Philippines. He was there, and you know, it's, it's preposterous to think that these people didn't contribute to the Oklahoma City bombing. And he said, that's right. And he said, my God, what's going to happen though if there's no FBI director when this next attack occurs? I said, you mean the attack on the World Trade Center? So he said, absolutely. He said, I expect that this, uh, we, we, we are, ex- we expect this attack is imminent. And I said, y- you mean like in the next few weeks? And he said, absolutely, it's coming. It's right here. And I, and he said, we know it's coming. We know it's imminent. And I said, well, Richard, I had better go back to New York and talk to the Iraqis one last time and see if they've got any messages from Baghdad. I will go and ask them if they've heard anything at all. Uh, I've been pushing them all summer long, and they keep telling me they've got nothing, but I'll just try one last time. And He said, Susan, I do not want you going to New York. And I said, Richard, I have to go. We have, you know, God forbid that they get a message from Baghdad, and I haven't gone up to see them, and they can't get it to me. And so I said, I'll, I'll go. And he said, go up right now, and then do not go back again until after this attack is over. We are expecting mass casualties. Now, we had already talked through the summer that the way the attack would be structured would be airplane hijackings after April, May, when it was kind of vague. Throughout the summer, we talked about airplane hijackings and a strike on the World Trade Center using some sort of miniature thermonuclear device. We expected the towers to be destroyed and obliterated in the attack and that it would have to involve a nuclear bomb but not a not a not a Hiroshima bomb but a miniature device and my defense intelligence handler and I spoke frequently about where we thought they'd get it and how in fact that, that any anybody with the a, with a proper ID could drive onto a military base to an armory and take off you know and drive off with a uh you know waltz in grab a bomb and, and get out the door that it wouldn't would not be very difficult to do that at all, and so we were you know we talked about which armories were close to New York, how many day you know how many hours it would take how many how many how many armories were in a day's drive of New York City, um, to, to get it there and and and. You know that we uh, that they really ought to put out an alert on those bases to protect their millet their 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 nuclear supplies. Wait a
0: minute, but you weapons. must be thinking at this point, Susan. Wait a minute. I've seen this movie before. I know how it ends. Vis a vis the USS Cole. I mean, so are you not thinking? Wait a minute. They're they're going to do it again. They're going to let it happen.
2: Yes, yes, that is, yes. And so we're fighting, so we were fighting to stop it. And we kept running into resistance. All the things that would have easily prevented it, for example, let me tell you the most obvious, would be putting um, an anti-aircraft artillery battery on top of one of the towers. They could have shot the darn plane flying over the water.
0: And that concludes... Part one of my two-part conversation with Susan Lindauer. Now, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back on the other side with a few details on an upcoming episode. Have you ordered your bottle of carbon-60 yet? The mighty Aphrodite and I have been taking a tablespoon of this miracle molecule suspended in olive oil for a few months now. We're taking the purest form of C60. It's called ESS60 and it's produced by our friends at C60EVO.com. C60 in oil is a powerful antioxidant that moves through the body like a magnet to attract and neutralize free radicals. It can slow down aging and reduce cellular damage. C60 can improve the immune system and reduce inflammation naturally. Often we hear about improved vision and substantially keener mental focus. The mighty Aphrodite and I are sleeping much better, we're both pain-free, no joint stiffness or back pain, and that's why I call Carbon 60 the miracle molecule. It's great for us humans, and it's great for our pets. To order, go to c60evo.com, that's c60evo.com slash r-e-f slash r-s-1. Again, to order your bottle of ESS-60, go to c60evo.com R-E-F-R-S-1. Coming up next time, part two of my conversation with 9-11 whistleblower Susan Lindauer.
2: He testified in open court, very courageous thing to do, to tell the truth in those circumstances. It has to have been unnerving for him. He's a very shy man, but he stood by the truth. He said, Susan knew about the World Trade Center attack. She told us about it. And he said that he told the FBI about my 9-11 warnings in 2004. So the entire time that the FBI was prosecuting me and harassing me and threatening me, They knew that I had told the truth about 9-11. They they always knew.
0: Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.
1: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now.